Well, aloha. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be. This is Michael Benner with this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School from Maui, Hawaii. And today's topic is Sufism. This is the mysticism of Islam. And it has roots, oddly, in the classic Greek writings of Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle and particularly the Neoplatonism of Plotinus. Uh, we'll talk about that. I know that many people get scared off when you start talking about philosophy or you start mentioning Aristotle and Plato because it brings up images of boring classes in high school or college. There's really nothing boring about philosophy. Someone once said there are no boring lives, only boring people. And I think that's true for philosophy. There's no boring philosophy, only bad teachers. Um, it's a fascinating field, and we'll do our best to introduce you to some of the topics that were developed by the Sufis a thousand years ago, and also more recently in a more modern liberal and universal kind of Sufism. In many ways, the word Sufi with a small s is a reference to all mystics, whether they happen to be Buddhists or uh, Hindu mystics, uh, they may be Kabbalists or could be shamans or Rosicrucians or Freemasons. Mysticism, of course, is a very allegorical and progressive view that overshadows religion. Just as religion has its fundamentalist right wing, so to speak, it has its very liberal and progressive allegorical view. And that's where religion really tends to come together. If you study mythologists like um, Joseph Campbell, for example, they tend to include a lot of mysticism because their purview is comparative religion. And the left, the progressive or liberal, the allegorical view of religion is where it comes together. The fundamentalist view, of course, is where it separates and we get the rigid dogma and the idea that uh, there's only one right way, only one path to heaven, and the Protestant says uh, only Protestants will go to heaven, and the Catholics say, uh-uh, not in our Catholic heaven. And um, the Jews say, what are you talking about? Everybody goes to heaven, or there is no heaven. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. And, and so it goes. So <clears throat> just as the uh, Christian church, for example, which we're most familiar with in the West, has a very fundamentalist uh, element, the evangelical movement, so-called, that's very dogmatic and very rigid, puritanical, uh, repressed sexually, lots of rules and regulations that often don't make a whole lot of sense, um, and a tolerance, even a desire to promote war and armed conflict 
the Crusades, so-called. Remember, Bush called the war in Iraq a crusade. I'm sure he regretted it later, but I'm sure he regretted a lot of what he said and did. Um, not as much as he should, but some of it. So in the same way, uh, in Islam, the Muslim religion and culture, the larger set that is Islam, there is a fundamentalist element. Uh, people that take religion far too literally, uh, that insist there's only one interpretation, and lo and behold, guess what? It's just happens to be their interpretation. Even a concept in Islam like jihad is grossly misunderstood in the same way the fundamentalist misunderstands, it could be argued, resurrection or redemption in the Christian religion. Jihad has to do with an internal struggle against your own demons. Um, a fight against what is sometimes in Western mysticism called the dweller on the threshold or the anti-Christ. It means the ego and the part of you that identifies with your mortal existence and your material goods and your money and, and your power rather than identifying with your higher nature your better angels, your soul, so to speak. And to these people, a soul is a uh, quasi-spiritual, quasi-material subset of your mortal self. And it's fashioned upon conception and is released upon death. Whereas in Christian mysticism, the soul is born in heaven at the beginning of creation, lives in heaven, where else could it go? Where else could it exist as a spiritual thing? It could not possibly come into form, but it could emanate a physical form. And that's the difference in Christianity between a fundamentalist and a mystical view. Well, we have the same thing in Islam. The fundamentalist jihad, of course, is an excuse for war. It's a Muslim crusade. We saw this in the expansion of the Ottoman Turks and their empire into Eastern Europe and um, Southwestern Asia, for example, all the way up into Mongolia. And now again, this attempt by the Wahhabi school out of Saudi Arabia to portray a jihad as a physical material war against all non-believers, anybody whose reference to God is other than Allah. You know, you can agree with a, with a, uh, a Muslim that there is but one God, but the issue comes down to what do you call God? Do you use the word God? Do you use the word Yahweh or Jehovah? Do you use the word Elohim? Um, do you use the, the concept of 
Father or Lord, or do you use the word Allah? To a mystic, a Christian mystic, a Jewish mystic, a Buddhist, a Sufi, it doesn't really matter to them because they see it all as allegory anyway. It's all metaphor. And whatever your name of God, as long as your heart is oriented toward becoming a better person, finding the God within and developing those divine qualities in yourself, that's all that really matters to a mystic. In fact, most mystics uh, are very loving and forgiving and uh, kind to all people, even those that that are obviously hostile. Um, some great stories about that. Maybe we'll get into later today. Uh, that's your love the enemy stuff. That Again, the more fundamental or the more literal you are in your religious belief, the more difficult it is for you to understand what love your enemy means. It only makes sense, really, to somebody who's more progressive or more liberal, if you will, more of a mystical orientation in their religion. So the first thing we want to talk about with Sufism is that it has its roots in classical Greek literature. And I think, again, this is surprising, especially to many in the West, who particularly in recent times have had the Muslim religion, uh, the Koran, uh, the whole concept of Islam demonized. And um, generally referred to as if all of it is fundamentalist, this uh, Wahhabi uh, school of uh, Osama bin Laden and, and these um, terrorists uh, that constantly dominate the, the propaganda that we get, the anti-Islamic propaganda. Um, for whatever reason, Muslims have been slow in this country, in Europe, and elsewhere to say, hey, we're, we're not all a bunch of right-wingers. We've got this beautiful um, tradition, this really rich and wonderful mystical tradition. Have you ever read Hafez? Have you ever read Rumi? Well, these are some of the most beautiful mystical poems ever written. Um, both Persian men, Rumi was 13th century, Hafaz came out a few hundred years later, as I recall. But in any event, this branch of Islam that came about 500 years after the Prophet Muhammad, about 1,000 in the current era, A.D., has its roots, as I said, in classical Greek philosophy. The writings of Pythagoras and Aristotle and, and Plato, and particularly in the Neoplatonic writings of Plotinus and the Enneads 
Uh, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie Meetings with Remarkable Men, you know that Gurdjieff and Ospensky, these great writers, also came out of studying the Sufi tradition. You may know about the Enneagram and the personality profiles of the Enneagram. That also comes out of Sufism. There was a human potential movement started in the 60s by Oscar Ichazo called Arika that was centered in Chile, in South America, as I recall, or perhaps Peru. I think it was Chile. And um, this movement also, great enlightenment, wonderful teachings for waking up, was also rooted in Sufism. Now, I must hasten to add that Sufism also owes a debt to Buddhism. This is as surprising as saying that it's rooted in the classical Greeks, um, but it is. And few Westerners really appreciate how much reverence the average Muslim has for Buddhism and the Judeo-Christian tradition. They don't believe, for example, that Jesus is a co-equal branch of absolute divinity, but they see him as a great teacher and a great prophet who had wise things to say and who indeed was a great healer and and a great rabbi. Um, That's not enough for the fundamentalist Christian, of course, who insists that Christ be accepted as your personal savior in the same way that a fundamentalist Muslim insists that God's name must be Allah and and can have no other name. Even if you agree there's only one God by any name, that's not good enough for a <laughs> for a right winger Christian Muslim, uh the the Jewish conservative or Orthodox um uh Hebrew or uh or what have you. You have the same thing in Hinduism. You have the very conservative Brahmanism. You know, um, Hindu is really a, it's sort of like Orient. It's a word that was coined by Westerners to refer to a variety of religious sects and um, uh, branches of uh really ancient religion called Brahmanism. And Hinduism is just sort of a broad brush that aggregates all of these different groups into uh, one. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting forth here as a, a, a way of approaching your understanding of, of Middle Eastern Islamic mysticism that its roots are in classical Greek philosophy, pantheism, which I'll define in a minute, and also Buddhism. And you put those together, and you're a mystic, whether you call yourself a Sufi or not. You throw in a dash of, uh, of Rosicrucianism, a little bit of Kabbalah, and some shamanism, and uh, <laughs> you're on your way. It's the path of the heart, 
the middle way or the third way is love as consciousness and dedicating yourself to love, compassion, forgiveness, redeeming, again, not only a single lifetime, as a conservative Christian would argue, but redeeming <clears throat> excuse me, every problem that you have and every hurt that needs to be healed. Forgive me, I've got to have a little sip of juicer. This is a, an important distinction, I think, to see, especially given our exposure uh, almost exclusively in the United States and Europe to Christianity, to open your mind to the idea that this core belief about resurrection and redemption is not limited to your uh, sinful nature and this single lifetime but as an emanation of the soul you can learn to redeem every problem and every heartache and this is more of the mystical tradition slaying yourself um, in love dying to love wishing to be consumed by love one of the uh, classic allegories in Islamic mysticism in Sufism is the moth to the flame. The idea that the moth is so attracted to the light of the candle that it will allow itself to be consumed by that flame. Um, a similar story or allegory is the plaintive sound of the bamboo flute representing the longing of the flute for the reed bed to go again back to its source um, to know something of its origin its creator um, this is the great Mandela and it's very important in pantheism panentheism Greek philosophy, Buddhism, Islamic mysticism, in fact, all mysticism, the, the idea of a great wheel or mandala, a karmic wheel. Sufis don't use the word karma, but they do talk about the law of reciprocity, or what in the West we might call cause and effect. That whether you live one lifetime or many lifetimes, you continue your existence once you drop this mortal coil and your journey home again, you know, jiggity-jig, that you are an emanation of the most divine, a child of God, and then you journey into this material world, and the idea is by developing yourself to be a better person, to discover within your divine qualities, um, you know, not just to ensure some heavenly destination or destiny uh, when you die, but to live as a better person, as a liaison, as a, uh, <laughs> a diplomat, a disciple um, of divinity, and to express those qualities in your daily life and affairs. 
there's a real selfishness in fundamental religion, especially Christianity, I think, where your primary desire is to get your sorry self into this heavenly place. We even see some of this in in, in Buddhism and, and other mystical traditions, except that you have an overriding teaching that your sense of self as a separated entity is a total illusion. That ultimately there is no real self, there's just the one thing or the one life. So much of mysticism is about this cycle, this great wheel, all things from God, all things returning to God. One of the Sufi quotes that I put in the newsletter this week, um, a classic Sufi proverb goes something like, I looked for God and found only myself. I looked for myself and found only God. Again, challenging to a fundamentalist Muslim or Jew or Christian um, who is thinking of God as separated. Not only the self is separated, but sees God as separated. Well, this is where you'll hear people <laughs> say, you know, Oprah thinks she's God. Because Oprah's had a taste of mysticism. She's had some therapy in her life, and she likes it. You know, it makes sense to her. She's a logical, reasonable, intelligent person. She doesn't think she is the totality of God. She is looking for the divinity within. If you're in the image of your creator, you ought to be able to do that. And again, we're back to Plato. This is really the beginning of the human potential movement. Plato said the soul shares the ground of God. Well, this is not a separated soul that is fashioned upon conception and tucked invisibly into a mortal body, stained and evil from original sin, and, if you say the magic words, released upon death. You see, this is the soul that overshadows permanently, of which we are but an emanation, or a philosopher might say an extension you know those whip antennas and the old uh, portable transistor radios and walkie-talkies, the collapsing antenna, the <laughs> you extend the antenna. Well, in many ways, the physical world is seen by the mystic, certainly not by the fundamentalist, as an extension, or you could also say reflection or emanation, of the spiritual self. The physical dense is a reflection of spirit, is challenging. That can be difficult. But a little bit of science, and you have a perfect parallel, where since Einstein put the equal sign between energy and matter, energy and mass, that's spirit and matter. That's father and mother, right? Father, spirit, matter, mother, matter, father, mother. They call it Holy Spirit, but it's the mother aspect. Uh, 
you have the material world as a reflection or emanation of a world of energy. And this is, this is accepted by empirical science, that energy and mass is pretty much all we have to work with. There is, of course, a third element, which is consciousness, or the soul, or divine love. That, that energy and mass is conscious, is sentient. Look at yourself. You are, you are both energy and matter, and yet you have this awareness. And the energy alone and the matter alone doesn't really speak to this third element that is consciousness or awareness. I hope you get that. That's really quite profound. Now, pantheism is probably more commonly known as paganism. And when the Catholic Church emerged in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, it, um, it was interested in extinguishing or eliminating pantheism. Because it wasn't regal enough. You know, just like the Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah because he wasn't regal. He didn't have a palace. He wasn't interested in a palace or even shoes. And uh, they couldn't even get him to ride a horse. Except once he was really tired, he got up on this old donkey. But, you know, he was obviously an anti-materialist and not the kind of king that people in that day and age, Jewish or otherwise, really would respect or revere. They wanted somebody with a big palace. I mean, look at royalty today. Even in the 21st century, monarchy remains because people like that. <laughs> They'll pay a lot of money to have uh, like this big king or queen sitting up there, blue bloods, better than the rest of us, because it somehow comforts the child within. A lot of our view of divinity is that same kind of projection. You know, instead of acknowledging or, or searching for what it means to be made in the image of divinity, we project upon divinity our particular needs as little children. You know, won't you take care of us, Father? Won't you comfort us? Uh, won't you be the big king, the big daddy in the sky? Well, Pantheism had that, the idea of God transcendent, and that's certainly a part of all religion. But pantheism or paganism also had the idea of God imminent. And I'm, I'm saying imminent, not imminent. I don't mean about to happen. I mean uh, imbued within uh, the creator present in its creation. Again, something that a fundamentalist Christian, Jew, Muslim, Hindu doesn't really consider usually. And it makes the church, the Christian church, the Catholics and the Protestants that came out of it really nervous. 
because that means that this snake, Mr. Snake over here, is a divine snake. And this warthog and this elephant and this rhinoceros are divine animals. And the ants and the, and the cockroaches are divine emanations. God's need to be an ant, God's desire to express itself as a cockroach. And the trees are divine trees, and the grass is divine grass, and the flowers are ecstatic expressions of divinity. And the blue sky and the clouds and the stars, the cosmos, the, the intergalactic gases, the, the, all that exists in the material, physical, dense universe to a pantheist, is a reflection, an emanation of divinity, of God, God extending itself into the In other words, look at your dog or your cat or your children or your neighbors that you don't even like. And instead of considering that God made them the way you would make something out of clay and set it aside, that God is them. See, God didn't make your cat. God is the cat. Well, this is core paganism, <laughs> pantheism, and the church outlawed it. This is what the Crusades were about, largely, not just killing non-Christians, but even those Christians the Essenes, the Cathars, the Gnostics, who understood this concept. Recently, a word has been coined that I'd like you to know, panentheism. Pantheism is primarily a reference to divinity in all material things. Panentheism is pantheism plus God transcendent. So panentheism is God is in everything, and everything is in God. Now, it's just intelligent. It's just reasonable, logical. Spend a couple of days flipping through some philosophy books, and that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Really, really, I think, responds to the desire that we have for our spiritual lessons to be reasonable, <laughs> rather than having to fall back on matters of faith. It's so easy to be exploited if the emphasis is on faith. Well, you don't need to understand it. It, it doesn't need to make sense or be reasonable. Just accept it, because... I'm the preacher man, and I'm telling you what to believe. You know, one of the primary tenets of Buddhism, and therefore uh, Sufism, is that you believe nothing simply because it's been written down. Again, a fundamentalist Muslim, there, there are no fundamentalist Buddhists, <laughs> I don't think. Uh, there is a school called Hinayana that's basically Buddhism for priests. Um, 
as opposed to the Mahayana school of Buddhism, which is more for every man. But uh, one of the basic tenets of Buddhism is just because an authority tells you it's true or because you read it in a holy book, I mean, the holy books contradict themselves, right? So you have to use the brains God gave you to discern the meaning. And if you're too lazy to do that, then you're prone to drift to the right and to be sucked up by these more reactionary and fundamentalist divisions of religion where you just sit in the church or the temple or the synagogue uh, smiling and nodding and believing whatever you're told, right? You end up in the Westboro Baptist Church going to military funerals with signs, you know, that says God hates fags and, and call yourself a Christian, or promoting war and call yourself a Christian, blessing battleships, right, and calling yourself a Christian. Um, so, I guess this is the basic introduction that I wanted to talk about, the way in which the concept of God as both transcendent and imminent Everything in the one and the one in every seemingly separated thing. Really not separated except by appearance, but rather unified uh, in spite of appearances and harmonized by this middle element that is consciousness or the soul that stands between heaven and earth, um, that stands between God and man or between energy and matter, if you're of a more scientific bent, this sentience, this this consciousness, the overshadowing soul. Oddly, many of the founders of the Catholic Church, uh, for example, Origen, did believe, Augustine did believe in pantheism. They they were pagans. They they were pagan Christians or Christian pagans in that they believed in the overshadowing soul, the pre-existence of the soul. And even though they were founders of the Catholic Church in the 2nd and 3rd century, they were later declared by the 5th century in the Council of Nicene as heretics. Right? And there are many reasons for that. Maybe in another program we can get into it. A lot of it is the church trying to eliminate or whitewash the idea of karma and reincarnation. Um, getting rid, even though the Bible, the Christian Bible says that you have to be born again. Um, and they want you to take that literally. They didn't mean that part. No, no, take it literally, but not that part. Uh, not the born-again part. That has a different meaning, again, because I say so. Um, the church was afraid that if you thought you had many lifetimes, that you'd just party and continue to be these hedonistic pagans with their wine, women, and song, and, uh, you know, not go to church and 
not put all your money in the collection plate, and so on and so forth. Again, the, the way the church has taken a, a religion of non-materialism and used it to enrich itself is one of the, the great ironies of human civilization and uh, addressed by by many people who are better at this than I am. I tend to get a little cynical uh, and upset when I start talking about the prosperity of the church. It upsets me in the same way as the sexual abuse that comes out of the sexual repression of the church, trying to pretend that your sexuality is a bad thing. Well, uncontrolled lust obviously is your animal nature and should be managed. But as an expression of love, your sexuality is a beautiful thing. And uh, the church has never been mature enough to teach it that way. So these are, these are pagan ideas. This is pantheism and better said panentheism. Again, pantheism is basically... The creator is in its creation. God is in all things. All things are God, right? Panentheism is that plus the part the church likes. Everything is in God. God is transcendent and regal, the big daddy, the king, the totality of all that is, and more. For ultimately, Above even the father aspect of God is a Godhead from which all that is divine emanates the one about whom naught may be said. And that's probably where we should leave that instead of, you know, trying to name God, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, Allah, or the names of God, the much, the much written in cultures about discerning the name of God, the, the cities or the power that people have once they learn the true name of God, Atman, Brahman, what have you, it goes on and on. How about the one about what may be said? How about accepting that our little pea brains could not understand God any more than the ant can understand you? Or the car that just drove over it. All right. But we could aspire to finding the divinity within, the God within, that illumines and animates us. And that's what's so rich and wonderful and progressive and liberal about mysticism in all the religions. You know, the Kabbalah of the Jews, and not only Jewish Kabbalah or Hebrew Kabbalah, but the Renaissance era, uh, so much of, of, of the interest in uh, mysticism in the European Renaissance came out of a rediscovery of, of Kabbalah and also Egyptian or Hermetic um, occult sciences, if you will. And uh, again, as I said before, all religions have their mystical traditions. The Sufi just happens to be the mysticism of, of Islam. This also, we should probably say something about the derivation of the word Sufi. It's rooted in an impronounceable word 
SF, uh, or SUF, if you will, but simply written SF. And this is a reference to a coarse cloth, unrefined, inexpensive uh, cloth that is worn often by monks um, and uh, priests and uh, even lay individuals as a symbol of their rejection of materialism and the comforts and temptations of the material world. Also, the whirling dervish comes out of Islam and uh, the Persian mystic, the poet and lawyer already mentioned here, Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi, uh, and the Medlevi tradition from the 13th century. Uh, Sufism existed before Rumi, but it was out of his work that this Medlavi tradition of the whirling dervish comes. And if you ever get a chance to see these dancers perform, uh, go and watch and be transfixed. If, if you are at all sensitive to altered states of consciousness, if you can participate as an observer by allowing yourself to empathize or in the bigger definition, sympathize, to feel the shift in consciousness brought about by the dervish, uh, you'll find this a, a fascinating experience. Uh, it might bring up images of being a little kid and you would spin and spin and spin until you got dizzy and fell down. And then laying on the ground, the world continues to spin around you. That's uh, a pretty good allegory. But the dervish is trained to spin in such a way that his consciousness or her consciousness in this modern day, women are allowed to do this also, is affected and shifted to promote a communion or a union with divinity Again, one of the primary goals of any mystic, without getting dizzy or intoxicated, right? So even too much spinning or incorrect spinning is intoxicating. You fall down <laughs> and you get drunk on the spirit. So the, the dervish studies the right way to do this. And they wear these beautiful dresses, of course, um, all of which is symbolic, the fez, the hat, the hand gesture, the upward-held hand at one point, receptive to the downward precipitation of spirit as love, as consciousness, as love and light. And then at one point, having filled itself as a vessel, turning that hand down toward the earth, Again, the idea that as a soul-infused persona, we play the role of the middle element, consciousness as the soul, as love, as the middle element between energy and mass, between the spirit and matter, receptive to above, but then 
expressing that love and wisdom out into the world, causative to the world, loving your enemy even, all things as sacred, as expressions of the Most High. Um, want to mention that too. If you ever get a chance to see the, the Medlavi dervishes, um, do so. I saw them in Los Angeles. Um, in fact, it was it was a very auspicious occasion. It was on the night, the anniversary of Rumi's death, and Rumi's death is celebrated as a wedding. <laughs> That's how beautiful this is. To the Sufi, a death, especially of a great uh, master or sage like Rumi, is a spiritual betrothal. It's the wedding of the persona nature that's done all this aspiration with its higher soul. And that's a beautiful concept. So his death night is his wedding night. And it was that night, the anniversary of, I forget what date. It was, you know, obviously hundreds of years. But it was that very night uh, that that we happened to see the dervishes perform. It was really rich and beautiful, wonderful. Uh, so I'm going to, at this point, uh, uh, we're about 45 minutes in, turn it over to your questions uh, by text or by telephone or by Skype. Uh, for those of you who are with us live here today, if you're listening on the podcast, I want to remind you that you can find the link to the live program in the newsletter that we uh, send out every week, usually on Friday, sometimes Saturday. Or you can just go to our website, theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of it. After the W's, dot, theagelesswisdom.com. You can click on free newsletter, leave your first name and email address to get that. And then if you click on homepage to go inside, you'll find a link that says web teleconference. And that's another way to listen to these webinars live every Sunday, 1 o'clock Pacific, 4 o'clock East Coast time. And participate. Uh, you can leave a text question even in advance of the class if you'd like. Just be sure and Enter your name and city with the comment or question, and then press the submit button. you got to hit submit for it to come through. And if you're on the telephone or Skype, star 2 on your uh, keypad will indicate that you'd like to be uh, called upon or unmuted one at a time. Uh, we start getting more phone calls. I'll even let you talk to each other. If you'd like to do that, I can bring two or more people on without opening up all the phones at the same time. That's always been the problem with conference calls, right? Either everybody's on or nobody's on. And uh, we have a system here where we can bring you on one at a time, just like a radio talk show. But I know that most people are way too... Uh, it's an exceptional listener that 
that calls. So we have the text option for you, and that's where we'll begin. Let me get over there now and reorient myself. Throw a couple of switches and find out who's here. Got lots of people on the phone. Good. Let's go to the um, phone people second. Let me start with the uh, uh, text questions and comments. See, see if I can respond to some of these. I have Greg from Avon Lake, Dzikowski. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and he said, uh, "What are the symbols of Sufism? Typically, um, or, or that Sufism typically utilizes? For example, what is the meaning of the mule um, in its travels and its road to spirituality, um, or the symbol of a thousand and one nights, perfumes and flowers and and those meanings?" Um, also, Greg doesn't uh, speak to it, but the symbol or logo that I've used for the ageless wisdom of eagle's wings over a rising sun is also, uh, to a large extent, a Sufi symbol. Let me see if I can speak to some of this. The rising sun was probably the easiest symbol to speak to. Because it's the coming of the light. It's man waking up. Um, in Freemasonry, the student, the beginner, the neophyte, uh, sits in the east for this reason. It's the rising sun. And uh, again, there's a reference to being awakened or being a beginner in your search for the light, for divinity. And the wings of the eagle represent the soul. Often there's a heart in the middle of the wings. If you see a winged heart, a heart with wings, this is a reference to the fact that we are a soul. Um, the archetype of a bird, for example, if you have a dream about a bird, uh, it's a reference to the soul or your spiritual nature as well. The mule or the donkey, this sometimes um, is a reference to the fool as well. And we see this in tarot, which has a correspondence to Kabbalah in its uh, rebirth or European Renaissance, the fool card. The fool or the donkey, again, is an idea that um, we're wisest when we realize what fools we are. Um, this is the uh, the person who is first awakening to his spiritual nature. And uh, rather than presume that we know anything about who we are or our divinity, um, to identify as a fool, uh, to... To take a uh, uh, to take a modest uh, or self-effacing uh, approach to divinity, it's like getting on your knees when you pray, or laying prostrate, prostrate, um, and uh, 
you know, before God is this concept of making yourself small and and relatively saying that you understand that most of what we know or think we know really has to be, by definition, uh, pretty foolish. And uh, let's see. Uh, Greg goes on, but I've got so many questions here. Um, John Bowles in Pittsburgh has jumped in just to say hi. Hello, John. Aloha. Phil Jaffe in Canoga Park uh, says hello. Judy Craft in Arcadia. Aloha, Michael. And Mahalo Nui Loa for an interesting class. Maybe in the future you could do a class on reframing. It really works. Yeah, let me call your attention, Judy, to the archives. And I did a class not long ago called An Introduction to NLP, to Neuro Linguistic Programming, uh, the Bandler and Grinder work that comes out of Ericksonian hypnosis. And reframing is really a, a concept, or by that name, a term out of NLP. But yeah, we'll do that again. Uh -huh. And uh, Robert Wacker has a definition of pantheism, nature is church. <laughs> I like that. That's exactly right. I mean, what's more holy than a, than a forest or a meadow full of wildflowers? Uh, you know, big cathedrals and uh, gothic cathedrals, you know, vaulted arches and synagogues and temples are beautiful things, but Again, we gotta we gotta educate ourselves and and our more conservative brethren to this idea that you know God is separate and you are separate and just because of the appearance and physical dense of separated form, spirit by definition is not separated. You know, how do you divide the air? or divvy up the water segments. In Albuquerque, Donna says, hello, Michael, another great class to contemplate. And she says nice things about me. Thank you, mahalo. She says, I feel grateful to be able to participate. Have a great week. And thank you for all you do. Bruce in Oregon is with us and says, aloha, I got home late today, but want to Wish the greater family here peace, hope, and, and comfort across the Pacific and throughout the world. You know, I said that I wanted to talk at the top of the program about the disaster in Japan, and uh, I never did. And I want to go to the telephones here. So I, I, I feel like it's it would be wrong to say nothing. Um, so let's talk just for a couple of minutes and then I'll go to the phone callers because I got a couple of people with their hands up. Star two on your telephone touchpad if you'd like me to bring you on here. Um, what can we do about all of this? You know, the the 
conservative religious person, the orthodox person, and, and the progressive, the mystic, will pretty much say the same thing, pray and meditate. And I want to add my voice to the chorus. Uh, it's not clear why this works. But again, the more conservative or orthodox you are, the more likely you are to think of prayer as moving God, which is a very difficult position to hold because that makes God very capricious. Uh, it projects human emotions on God. It turns the ultimate divinity into a micromanager with a uh, video game console that decided to do an earthquake in Japan just for the hell of it. And uh, then there are others that say, oh, no, this is the karma. This is, this is personal karma working out. Or some might say, no, it's planetary karma, or it's in the stars. As the astrologers have said this and that. Some will say, well, this is the beginning of the end. And, and yet, I would have you consider that in the mystical traditions of all religions, God is law, unmovable, unchanging. And so prayer would not move God. The benefit of prayer is to change the one who prays, to bring the aspirant into alignment, to, by forming an intention in a quiet state of mind with a calm heart, to create a path of least resistance and to open yourself and to be more receptive to the consciousness, to the love and to the light that redeems, that heals, that refines, that improves, that uplifts. To find the wisdom, for example, not only to send aid to do a better job than our government did during Katrina. You know, not to use a disaster to prove that government doesn't work by making sure government doesn't work, but to do everything we can as individuals, as families, as communities, as, as government on all levels to help out, but also to raise our consciousness through prayer and meditation so that we could stop putting nuclear power plants on top of the rim of fire. I mean, you've got to be crazy to build a nuclear power plant on an earthquake fault line. You know, <laughs> this this earthquake, this big earthquake, any geologist would tell you that it was going to happen sooner or later. There's a subduction fault in that part of the world where the whole Pacific plate is being pushed under the plate that is Asia. Japan moved eight feet. Uh, 
the energy released changed the angle of the planet by several degrees and added a couple of milliseconds to the speed of the Earth's rotation. And yet, <laughs> these events are unavoidable. You don't build a nuclear-fired steam plant, and that's the magic of nuclear power, steam. It's an archaic technology, a holdover from another century. It's inappropriate. It's not a smart way to boil water. <laughs> you know, not to mention the fact that the waste product can be used to build nuclear weapons as part of the war cycle, and that we have no way to store the waste, building a bunch of plants, or even one, on top of the Earth's biggest fault line is crazy. And, that, and the irony that it's Japan, that the United States nuked the Japanese in Hiroshima, and then in Nagasaki, and then sold them on nuclear power and said, we got the perfect place, we'll put it on top of a huge earthquake fault. And don't worry, we'll encase it in cement. This nuke, by the way, that's melting down is 40 years old. 40 years old. And so if you think that it was built with lessons learned at Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, think again. There are 23 nuclear power plants in the United States with exactly this same design. And even progressives, even Barack Obama is pro-nuke. Because somehow, in the, the most narrow-minded way, they think of it as needed in this age of global warming, climate change, carbon emissions, and here's a clean fuel. Well, there's nothing clean just because they don't, just because a nuke doesn't emit carbon dioxide doesn't make it clean. It emits ionizing radiation. There's a reason the x ray technician leaves the room every time they irradiate you with an x-ray. There's a reason they know enough to walk out of the room. And you've probably noticed all the lead aprons and gloves hanging on the wall. It's just, it's just crazy. And people say, well, you don't sound very compassionate. I thought you were the spiritual teacher. Uh, I am compassionate. <laughs> I am compassionate. It doesn't mean that I can't be politically or socially aware of the profit motive and the war motive behind nuclear power. Uh, you know, I, all my life I've I've been warning. I've been part of this group of people that went to school and warning my neighbors and my friends about nuclear power. And even today, look over Facebook and Twitter, and you'll see people, or, or if you dare, turn on Fox News, and you'll hear these industry experts playing this down. And it's just insane. 
There's no other word for it. Understand nuclear power is part of the war machine. And this doesn't speak to the inevitability of earthquakes or the tsunamis that follow. But it's likely that this nuclear disaster, these nuclear power plants melting down, even partially, could cause more death, destruction, more hurt and heartache than the earthquake and the tsunami combined. And I'd love to be wrong about it. But sometimes you get tired of saying, I told you so. We haven't built a nuke in this plant in 35 years. There's a reason we haven't built any nuclear power plants in America since 1975. They don't work. They're dangerous. It's the most expensive way to generate fuel. And all they're doing is boiling water to make steam to drive turbines. It's inappropriate. It's like using a chainsaw to slice through warm butter. It's crazy. So pray and meditate to change yourself. Don't worry about moving God or asking God to intervene. All right? Move yourself in alignment. Pray for the wisdom. Not only the compassion and the healing, but the wisdom to oppose these death technologies and to promote life and love in the world. That probably would have been better at the beginning of this class than stuck in the middle, but somehow I I just felt like something had to be said. All right, let's uh, see if uh, we can bring on our callers. I've got, um, let's see, looks like Esther in Los Angeles. And Esther, you're in the Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hi, hello. Michael, it's Patricia. Oh, Patricia. <laughs> that's just, uh, Esther's the one that has, it's in her name, the phone. I see, well, that's how it came up. Nice <laughs> to hear from you, and aloha. Yeah, aloha. I yeah, I love the show. I love uh, talking about all this stuff. I love to hear it. Um, Thank you. I was going to ask you. That, I was going to say a lot of other stuff, but now when I ask, um, if you pray for somebody, then you're. It's better to just to pray for yourself to um, be able to handle these things and uh, to uplift your consciousness. That if you pray that somebody else gets better um, spiritually or mentally. Um, that energy won't really help them. It'll help yourself more. Well, you might think that because, again, our tendency is to think of ourselves as separate. Um, There's a lot of research, though, that indicates that praying for others really works. Yeah, I was thinking you're sending energy out when you're doing it. Yeah, now it may come through you. Um, I think most of what uh, works about prayer is happening on the plane of the soul. Yeah. Not on the physical plane. It works its way out. It's like... Uh, go ahead. I was thinking like, okay, the mental part of our our soul, our consciousness, I know that our ego is... Uh, is our ego the mental part? 
a part that we use to do math and figure things out. Well, and the emotional part also. Yeah, and then so the soul is just the deep down uh, essence of your self. Deep down and high up. (laughs) Yeah, and high up, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, so that has um, nothing to do with with the physical life so much. When a spiritual healer works, they're not working on the physical body in most cases. They're working on your energy body, your astral or etheric body. And that's what heals the physical? Right. And then it it emanates, it radiates out, it it moves. That's, That's why a spiritual healer can often see energy blocks or problems before they manifest in the physical. And then you say, oh, they're psychic, too. Well, it's not that they're psychic. They're just working on a more causal level where the physical body is more of an effect. So the place to apply the healing, and this is the weakness of allopathic medicine, so-called, they're working on the effect on the physical body rather than working on a causal level, whereas uh, acupuncture, for example, or many of the other allied healing, uh, spiritual healing, works on the energy level and then comes through into the physical. Well, on the energy level, on the spiritual level, or if you will, the plane of the soul, we're not separated. We work in groups or ashrams. We're sharing the ground of the one life. So, you know, we're separated only by appearance in physical form. Mm -hmm. And there is no other, really, so when you pray for another, <laughs> like yourself, yeah, it's not really a separated self. Uh, it's the heart and your caring, loving nature that unifies you with that person. So it, it's the love that makes sure, it, it's the love that allows the one life. I think you're praying to that one life to, to heal, to feel better. Right, right. So it's love that allows the one life to create an appearance of being separated, you and me, this one and that one, in form. But on the more causal energy or spiritual level, there is no separation, just a great ocean. I I wish that everybody could want to know this. Most people, a lot of people, more people are starting to want to know about this stuff, about the, you know, the wisdom and esoteric philosophy yeah more than ever i think so uh i saw a poll a few months ago that 25 percent of american adults now describe themselves as spiritual but not religious yeah i've seen that on facebook yeah. <laughs> it's funny i mean it was a, it was a poll and i saw it there and uh, i'm happy about that yeah. i'm just unhappy about the fact uh that a lot of all the bad things that are going on that Sometimes I think that's part of everything. It is. Maybe we see it as bad, but it's just the way things are. It's an opportunity to learn lessons that perhaps we could not learn any other way. Yeah, we just see it that way because um, I guess we're taught to see see things that way from when we're little. This is a chance for many Americans to heal the division between this culture and the Japanese. Yeah, there's so much uh, lingering animosity as a result of 
Pearl Harbor and World yeah. War Two and all of that. Yeah, they're people, and you see people getting hurt and killed, and yep. it's yep. awful. Well, and then you remember your humanity. So yeah. if this is what it takes. You, you'd think people would learn that through all the wars that have been since yeah, but, the beginning of but, time. Yeah. <laughs> but there's that overshadowing fear that makes people stupid yeah, and causes us to believe that there's someone here that's not us. Yeah, well, I think some people, they um, they actually purposely, <clears throat> they purposely put that fear out. Well. Because they're afraid. That's right. Try to frighten people. <clears throat> yeah. No question. How about a parting shot, Patricia? Uh, parting shot? Uh, just uh, just keep the love going out. <laughs> well, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Aloha. Aloha. Let's go uh, to West Los Angeles. And Robert, you're in the Mystery School with Michael. Aloha. Hello, Michael. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Robert. Nice to hear from you. Hey, uh, interesting topic today, one near and dear to my heart. Uh, thanks for the uh, the connection to uh, India, actually. Um, Pythagoras yeah. was very, very influenced by Buddhism, even though Buddhism, strangely enough, like like Jesus' message was rejected by the Jews. Uh, Buddhism was largely rejected by India. That's true. They didn't really dig the idea that, uh, well, the the top end of the society benefited greatly from the rather harsh and brutal caste system. Yes, in Buddhism, again, we're going back 2,500 years, and so how progressive to say women are equal to men in 500 B.C.? Yeah, and also in uh, Islam itself, um, the scholars all agree that after the Prophet Muhammad, uh, the coming of the Prophet Muhammad, may God be pleased with him, um, it was said that women should have benefited greatly, but the vast majority of Muslims at the time, uh, when they saw the implications of the New Deal, did the same knee-jerk that most people did when it came to the gospel. Uh, we got the same problem with the uh, Jewish religion and Christian religion. The the suppression of, of women is universal. That's an unfortunate... Uh, it's an unfortunate... Um, well, knee-jerk. It's, it's a whiplash. It's... Uh, you know, that's a long and interesting conversation about the redundant male uh, and the deep-seated fear uh, in many men that um, perhaps they're not as useful as they think. <laughs> um, you know, I want to say a couple of things about uh, real quick here. Cause You're talking about menstrual envy. Menstrual envy or just the fact that you know, it's, it's, women don't have a, a problem doing all this crap themselves. Their first and primary notion and desire is to nourish and radiate within a space. Uh, if they're asked to create the space and maintain it, they'll do that too. But, you know, the, 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 this, this creation, this is a whole other topic, but there's... 
been scientific evidence rock solid since the 40s that one gender has been here a hell of a lot longer than the other. And it ain't the way it's told in Genesis. <laughs> yeah, you mean Adam's rib. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, the fundamental baseline unit is feminine. The, the, the ground of being is feminine, at least on this planet. And man, as a, 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 an outgrowth of that, came clearly much later. Um, for a lot of reasons, um, but um, maybe, maybe that's something we'll have to do a, a show on. <laughs> I don't know much about that. Um, I, I mean, what you're saying, I know yeah. that the goddess religions, um, the matriarchal societies, existed long before uh, the patriarchy was dreamed up. The, long, long before, and there's evidence that. That uh, I forget the scientific name, but um, um, uh, birth with immaculate conception, if you will, is is possible. For I feel there's a scientific term for this. Yeah, it's in the um, plants. Do it all the time. Right, women are capable, and we're capable of of having children without being yeah. a, a, a DNA donor. And it was only when it was realized that perhaps by nature, life, what, whatever you want to call it, that there was a limitation of this, that uh, man was brought into the equation uh, with a very definite purpose. And as long as men fulfill that purpose, there's there's no problem. There's harmony on earth. But once, uh, once man started feeling some of the inequities of, of the matriarchy, and there were some, uh, we had this revolt 4,500 years ago in the Middle East, and it's been a pretty crazy situation since then. Yeah. What with a flip from the matriarchy to the patriarchy. The reality is all archies are out at this point except for a partnerarchy. That's the only one that's going to work. Without, without a harmonization of the genders and the, the male and uh, female energies within each person, um, there isn't going to be any peace on earth. Um, but you know, a word about prayer. Uh, real prayer, um, if somebody really comes to a moment of prayer with an open heart, um, not fearing any revelation, because, you know, when you think about who is, who is it that you're revealing yourself to, it's that inner energy that, Nobody else has contact with, you know, in that moment anyway. And if uh, one is present, then it gives you an optimum opportunity to know yourself or for anyone to know themselves. To really, you know, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Well, a person wants to know what they're thinking in their heart what's valuable to them really, truly, beyond all the veneers and other nonsense, then they need only look at what it is that they would ask for if they were in the presence of something that could grant any wish. Yeah, I like the approach in um, Mahayana Buddhism. There's essentially... um, two kinds of meditation. One is the uh, 
calming, um, quieting, getting Samatha. there. Samatha. Yeah. And then Vipassa. For real. Insight. Tra- they, uh, in English, they're basically tranquility, meditation, and the other one is insight. Right. Meditation. So once you're there, then the Vipassa is to to introspect, to to analyze, but not in a logical, rather more in an in intuitive way. Yeah, witnessing. Like Krishnamurti uh, used to use the example of watching a lizard on a wall. <laughs> you know, you got to be very keenly aware, waiting for that next, you know, to be aware of that next movement or movement. You've, you've got to be there fully, otherwise you're going to miss it. <laughs> and with prayer, should also be remembered, it's very helpful to remember that it's not just a cliche or a line in the Bible. The reality is, is that anything that you can any desire that you can formulate the language to ask for with your intellect is already known to your inner self anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, Otherwise, how could you form the question? Right. So you're not you're not actually asking for anything. What you want to do is give thanks for the presence of the potential to do it in the first place because you would not even it wouldn't even occur to you otherwise yeah that's very smart um that's like a on a higher turn of the spiral but the same understanding in basic hypnotherapy where you heal an emotional trauma for example by facing it moving into it but then through it uh, acting as if it never happened, as if you're already healed. Uh, psychodrama, same kind of thing. Um, the use of, of ecstasy in a therapeutic session. Uh, there's a lot of different, even cognitive or reality therapy uh, is like, well, how would you feel or what would you be thinking if you were already healed, if you were already, you know, had forgiven, were already beyond it? And that opens you to the truth that you really are. Some part of you really is. Yeah, to really, to really sort of um, embody the feeling that you'd have as if the thing were already done. Yeah. Exactly in real time, not as a thing in the future, but as a now. Rather than hold on to our pain and suffering as an identity in some pathetic appeal for sympathy and. Because that, yeah, that tends to that tends to pronounce the existence of the opposite. Right, exactly. Right. Everything right. you're looking for. One final word, if I may, about Japan, since you were talking about it. To those uh, people in the industry and other uh, nuclear power boosters, you look at the meltdown of a a reactor in Japan. Um, to, to look at this as, as a, with a, a flippant, uh, cavalier attitude, it really is a testament to the ignorance of basic cycles and patterns on the planet. For example, as you know, I'm sure, the weather and the flow of atmosphere moves in this hemisphere generally from east, or rather from the west to the east, 
And were you to have a meltdown in Japan, guess where the radiation is going to go? Yeah, West Coast. Or, well, around the world. Yeah, around the world eventually, but guess guess where the the first the first resting place is going to be. I mean, you know, we have phenomenal <laughs> rains out in the Pacific yeah. where it can ever get here. Um, man, oh man, it's it's. Um, hopefully, that'll wake up people to to the nightmarishness of of. I mean, if they if they can't comprehend why we shouldn't have any of them at all. Then at least maybe they'll think, well, boy, the sighting of these things really is important, I guess, isn't it? Unbelievable. Yeah. Nuclear uh, plants on a on a on a a circular what is essentially a great uh, continuum of fault lines, the Ring of Fire, is just absolutely crazy. We've done the same thing. You know, we've built all our new in California. Here, we built a bunch of nuclear plants on the coast. Oh my God! There's even one in the uh, the desert just west of Phoenix, where there's no water at all. Um, it, <laughs> it's it's such an insane. You have to laugh to keep from crying. Humanity, in its uh, foolishness, will do anything. You know, at uh, worshiping at the altar of materialism and death and destruction and, and this irony that you know first Hiroshima then Nagasaki now Furuyama I mean the Japanese have been nuked by American technology three times now and yet most people won't see it that way the Japanese didn't even see it that way and I'm wondering how many of them now are going my god uh, radiation is radiation. It happened again. You know, it was the it was the black rain after Hiroshima and Nagasaki that killed so many people from radiation in the atmosphere raining down upon them when when it started you know raining water and that's what's predicted now for this part of Japan is rain and snow. So. It's just crazy, and it's like that old song, you know, when will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Yeah. Um, just crazy. I, it, yeah, what, what, and and to have the this, this sort of Damocles hanging over their heads, let's say they're able to get, as they did in the case of Chernobyl, some sort of airsats containment dome <clears throat> over the thing, as you know, the the all the experts agree that the next Chernobyl will be Chernobyl. The yeah, radiation right. in there didn't go anywhere. It's still hot. It's it's a bomb waiting. I mean, yep. so so you so you have one of these things somewhere else in Japan, perhaps now. Yeah, time bombs. Not to mention the waste, which is hot. Even you know. Even if they cool it down in terms of physical temperature, it's hot in terms of its ability to emit ionizing, deadly ionizing radiation for tens of thousands of years. And we have no containment technology. We have no containment. In fact, None. The, the, no, it's just crazy. 
it's crazier than insanity. <laughs> the, the, not, most people don't really grasp the fact that over 90% of the used so-called spent fuel rods, which means, by the way, they're only 4% depleted, Yeah. 96% active. They got 90% of the radioactivity they did when they came out of the enrichment facility. Ready to be made into nuclear bombs. And where are they being stored? Underground. Worse, in coolant tanks inside the domes. Yes, yes. Hanford, Washington, for example, where it spilled into the river. What's that river up there? The uh, That mighty, huge river. Oh, uh, you mean Washington on the East Coast? Yeah. No, 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 not D.C., Washington State. There's that Hanford Reservation up there where this huge river that's the water supply for most of western Washington State is full of ionizing radiation because of the... um, Oh, Woody Guthrie wrote a song about this river, and I'm getting a mental block. Anyway, uh, we've irradiated the whole planet. It's it's a death technology. It comes out of and is supported by the war industry, and most people have no idea that all they're doing is generating steam, boiling water to make steam. Yeah, they're just fuel. using instead of burning coal, right. they're just using a more powerful. Um, well, initiator or catalyst, or they're using control. a more powerful thermal heating unit, right. but one that also produces waste that we can never really safely get rid of. And I don't care how deep you're buried under mountains in Nevada. Um, yeah, even the French, who were the vanguards oh, yeah. of clean nuclear, have stepped way back from this now. Very expensive. They realize the ridiculousness of it. Yeah. It's it generally they're more you, they're more powerful. It's true. You could you could, with the current U.S. setup, if you had 500 nuclear plants, you could provide all the electricity that we're currently getting from natural gas, coal, etc. But the cost would be 20 times <laughs> what it is for those. Dirty fossil fuels, which have their own problems. We we don't need the power. You go into a grocery store today, you'll still see freezers standing wide open with no doors on them. So this is for convenience, so you can reach into the freezer without having to open the door. Yeah, whatever happened to the old slide thing there, you know, the sliding... The sliding window or the lift top. You know, remember that from the old days? People don't like to open them. They like to reach right in. Uh, well, if they, maybe if they knew what they were paying. Well, again, now you know why the Republicans defund education to, to keep people narrow-minded, myopic, and simple. Uh, so they won't think. They're, they're, <laughs> it started in the Reagan era, and there was a method to their madness. Dumb them down. Keep them stupid. Don't let them find out what nuclear power is about. You know, Don't let them find out about the profit in war or whether it's the cost of 
of medicines and healthcare in general and uh, corruption far and wide is rooted in ignorance and fear and supported by ignorance and fear. And whenever somebody tries to control human beings, they're going to be using fear and ignorance. So, yes, of course, they want to cut your, your school money. Of course, they're going to defund the Department of Education. That's part of their devious, evil plan to keep people stupid. Um, I mean, that's why the, the church did not want the Bible printed printed they they didn't want people to actually read the damn thing of course not well that could create absolute chaos <laughs> they might think for themselves over there they might realize there was no need for the the church for the church right hey robert give me a parting shot uh a parting shot i don't know if it's available on youtube i've often thought of looking but People have often debated about well, when was the last time when when did things really turn for the worse? My humble opinion is that in uh, the late 1970s, uh, Jimmy Carter, who not a lot of people liked, but uh, nevertheless gave a very very uh, prescient speech on the state of things and what we really needed to do to turn things around. And that was not embraced. It was rejected, and we embraced, not I, but most embraced Reaganomics and the trickle-down theory and no solar energy. And um, if, if, that, if that speech is still available, and I imagine somebody might have posted to YouTube, that would be a good thing for everybody to watch. Uh, they'll be amazed at uh, how forward-looking uh, and how honest it was at the time, how soul-searching a message it was. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Robert. I appreciate it. Aloha. Aloha. Okay, let's see. Let me go back and put uh, unhook Robert and then come over here to the uh, questions. A few more people jumped in. Um David Massey in Culver City uh, saying hello, telling me to stay on the high ground. Uh, Doreen and I are almost 4,000 feet up the Haleakala volcano, so we did get a little tsunami action here, but it was, uh, did get some flooding. A few people were, uh, lost their houses, but it wasn't, uh, I mean, it was infinitesimal compared to what it could have been and what has been here in the past with tsunamis. So thanks for that. Uh, Diane in Albuquerque says aloha and uh, blessings to all. Carol Pastel also, hello, checking in. Glad you're okay. Thank you, Carol. Let's do a uh, meditation, a little visualization. If you find that this is a good time for you, whether you're live or listening to the podcast. Get comfortable, do a couple of head rolls and some shoulder shrugs and sit up straight and balanced, not rigid, but balanced and centered. Take a few slow, deep breaths. And particularly as you exhale, 
create and sense a letting go feeling in your body. Release that holding on. Throughout the day, thousands and thousands of times, you don't even realize it, there are these little micro holding on bouts of tension. Relax with the breath. Feel the letting go, muscles relaxing and unwinding. Slow, deep breathing and a feeling of letting go is a very clear message to the brain that you're safe and need not be concerned with your physical surroundings. When you close your eyes and continue the slow, deep breathing and the letting go, the message that you're safe is enhanced. And brain waves actually slow in frequency and your mind begins to open and higher brain functions now come online, normally inaccessible. You're becoming, even now, smarter, kinder, and more loving wiser, more harmonious in your disposition. And as you allow your breathing now to find its natural rhythm and turn the breathing over to autopilot, simply watch your body breathe itself. Gently place your awareness on the bottom of your nose. At the very point where breath enters and leaves the body, in witness, observe the body breathing itself and feeling safer and more relaxed. If you like to visualize you can enhance this experience by using your mind's eye to imagine yourself seated in a beautiful place, a place of perfect peace, a garden, or a wilderness, a cool, enchanted forest or a warm, sunny meadow filled with wildflowers. Blue sky, white puffy clouds, allow my voice to go with you, and yet imagine hearing birds singing. Hear the wind in the trees and feel its gentle breath blowing through your hair and across your face. Perhaps just a little cooler than the still air. Give yourself permission to feel this safe and this relaxed. 
as if open and receptive on the top of your head and your shoulders to a downward precipitation of spirit coming into you and filling you until filled and fulfilled and warm and radiant you imagine offering up and releasing on the horizontal this love this light that you have received so freely and unconditionally from above why would you ever withhold the love the kindness the compassion that you receive so effortlessly and without condition from the source of all life. Pass it on. Imagine yourself filled and full and fulfilled and warm and radiant and pass it on. project as peace as healing as compassion to the people of Japan first to those at ground zero those who have been nuked who suffered an earthquake a tsunami and now run for their lives from an insane technology, a death technology, that on the surface may appear to generate electrical power, but is designed actually to generate money and fuel for nuclear weapons. When you understand nuclear power as a plant for processing the fuel for nuclear weapons, you'll become hip to the trick. Flood that nuke with love and light. Imagine the Japanese people remembering Hiroshima and Nagasaki and realizing it's happened again. study war no more see them protected see them resisting the sickness and the death of nuclear radiation see their grief at the loss and the fear of not knowing what's going to happen next evaporated. You need not know how. Simply see it in your mind and feel in your heart a tranquility, a peace, hope descending upon all the victims, those beyond the immediate area, throughout Asia and across the Pacific 
and around the world that people may at some point come to their senses and cast off the oppression of the cruel and the greedy and the evil who profit from dark death technologies, war and conflict. See a new day, a new age. Imagine it. Dream it up. However it occurs to you in your mind's eye, feel the peace and the love and the harmony. And know that this is nothing that any one of us alone can accomplish. But working together in small groups, in larger groups, and turning this over to our own overshadowing spiritual selves, we invoke together the power that heals and enlightens. See heaven descending upon earth. Bring heaven to earth. Be less concerned with getting out of here and going to some place called heaven and more concerned in this moment right now with magnetically from the heart attracting the descent into form of perfect love as harmony as healing as compassion as wisdom to all the people to all the animals to the plants and the mineral kingdom that all might be liberated from their fear and ignorance in love and light So be it. Reorient yourself to the sound of my voice. Remember the room in which you sit and what you'll see in a moment when you open your eyes. Imagine yourself drifting up slowly as if in a hot air balloon. Cutting the ropes that bind you, imagine floating up one, drifting gently, drop a sandbag or two, as if in a beautiful hot air balloon, two, drifting gently higher, floating upward above the treetops, three, take a nice big deep breath, four, hold for a moment as you peek. And now as you exhale, five eyes open, wide awake, feeling fine, rested back in the room, feeling great, connected to the earth, grounded, rooted in the world, but not of it. Better and better, better than before. Hey, thanks very much for being with us today. Go to theagelesswisdom.com. Even three minutes from now, 
and click on the home page and then web teleconference. And you'll be able to hear this program streaming. And more importantly, use the link that says send to a friend to forward this to somebody that you know who would like to hear this program. The podcast will be out in two or three days, but streaming audio is available in a matter of minutes. Pretty much as soon as I hang up, forward it to a friend. Also, at the bottom of each newsletter, use that link to forward to a friend. If you like the podcast, go to the iTunes store or the podcast directory of your choice and leave a comment. These things are very important. Forwarding the program, forwarding the newsletter, leaving a comment at the iTunes store, rating the program. Not rating, rating. <laughs> well, you can rate the program, too. Uh means a lot. really helps. And if you like this, I think you'll really like the premium audio that my business partner Steve Snyder and I have done for over three years now. Uh, these are, by subscription, 99 cents, less than $4 a month. Each individual program you can also buy, if you're not a subscriber, for four ninety-five. But to subscribe, it's only 99 cents for a studio-quality conversation, compelling conversation with Steve and myself. We've been working together for more than 35 years, 70 years of human potential experience combined, plus guided imagery for less than a buck each. And you can forward an unlimited number of those to your friends for no charge whatsoever. If you're not a subscriber, get on board at our sister site for the premium audio program, Studio Quality, Steve and myself. Finding Yourself in Paradise is the name of the series at focusedpassion.com. The W is dot focusedpassion.com. There's an ED in there, focusedpassion.com. No contracts. Uh, you can unsubscribe at any time. Pull the plug whenever you feel like it. $0.99 cents a program, three ninety six a month. And uh, at the very least, get a free account, all right? Just use the program that says, maybe later, just send me the free stuff for now. Leave your name and email address, and you'll get six sample programs absolutely free. There's also excerpts on the front page. Check it out, focusedpassion.com. Mahalo. Thanks for being here. Join us next week for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.